Let's Talk Native is produced at the Eltian Studios on the Cataraugus territory of the Seneca Nation. We break all the rules for Native media by peeling back the layers of assimilation and indoctrination. We may step on a few toes through our examination of culture, art, politics, history, and identity. But the real goal here is to bring our people together by breaking down what separates us. So, welcome to Let's Talk Native with John Kane. Welcome to Resistance Radio, and um, I don't want to confuse anybody. I am combining both my uh, Let's Talk Native podcast and my Resistance Radio show uh, for today. And part of it is, look, there are things that have transpired this week here uh, where I live at the Seneca Nation that would have me doing the same, essentially the, the same show, the same material on both my podcast and my radio so, show. So um, this is both. Uh, Let's Talk Native and Resistance Radio uh, combined for, the, for this week. So let me get right into it. Look, I have talked about the conflict between New York State and the, uh, and the Seneca Nation um, for, for many years here. And I've done it on both my podcast and on my radio show. But this week, something, something new happened. There's been a bit of an impasse, and I don't want to say a complete impasse, um, between the Seneca Nation and New York State over the state's claim that they are entitled to revenue sharing from the, uh, the Seneca Nation, and imposed a forced revenue sharing. So it's not really sharing, it's really taking. Um, and the Seneca Nation lost in an arbitration battle over this thing, um, essentially, but at up, you know, and what they've been trying to do is really enlist the Interior Department to make a final call on this thing, to, to judge both whether revenue sharing should even be happening um, at, at this period of time, whether the, um, uh, the, the compact with, uh, between the Seneca Nation and New York State should indeed be, um, uh, include revenue sharing. Uh, or and whether the Interior Department should even review the extended period of this uh, of this compact, and I'll get into it a little bit more later, and whether the revenue sharing as it exists today is legal under the the federal statute, the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act. Those are the questions that the Seneca Nation has been asking. And you know what? If the Interior Department weighed in, even if they ruled on uh, in the state's favor, the argument would be done at least for now, at least until a new compact is negotiated. Um, after the 2023. But what the state decided to do was not just seize the amount that has been escrowed, you know, and the, and the Senecas have been putting aside the money the state has claimed is due to them. They've been putting it aside. They put it in a specific restricted account, an escrow account, where the state could see that the money's there, know that the money's there, so when this thing has finally been reviewed, 
that it would, you know, that the, that the Senecas indeed had the money set aside for, the, for this payment. But that wasn't enough for, for New York State. Kathy Hochul, the unelected governor of the state of New York, who seems to get a pass um, for any of her indiscretions, did something that even the arrogant Andrew Cuomo never did. Now, keep, keep in mind, before I even explain exactly what she did, according to the gaming compact between the Senecas and, uh, and New York State, if there is an arbitration battle that results in some sort of judgment, a, uh, a, a payment that has to be done, the prevailing party, if, if, they, if they don't get paid within 45 days after arbitration, the prevailing party can take the non-prevailing party into federal court. In fact, taking them into federal court, the, the Western District of New York um, U.S. court system, is the only recourse that the compact allows. But that's not what New York State did. New York State used a specific federal statute and a state court subpoena to freeze all the Seneca Nation's accounts. Now, let me, let, me, let me clarify that. Essentially to freeze all of the Seneca gaming um, uh, banking accounts. Now, I had to explain first off that the sole source of public finance for the Seneca Nation, its entire population, its nation operation, its, its services, its, you know, all of the governmental functions of the Seneca Nation are solely sourced through, through this gaming revenue. So by tying up the banks, you basically shut down all the finances of the Seneca Nation. Again, all the finances of the Seneca Nation. But that's not all. You also tied up every employee of Seneca Gaming, and for that matter, every employee of the Seneca Nation. Because essentially, the checks were no longer. There were actually checks, paychecks, bouncing. Now, keep in mind, the overwhelming and vast majority of employees of the Seneca Nation are non-Native. So this isn't just an attack on Native people. This attacked every employee of the Seneca Nation, Seneca Gaming. But it's more than that. It actually interfered with the livelihoods of every vendor, every contractor, and anybody who is in any way in the direct line of financial impact from the second largest employer in Western New York. That is what Kathy Hochul did. She froze those accounts. Now, she knew the account existed that had the money that she wanted in it, but that's not what she targeted. She targeted, she literally held the Seneca Nation hostage. I mean, this, this is kind of like ransomware, where you, you go in and you shut down somebody's complete uh, IT system. You, you shut down all of their functionality, and you say, you pay me, and, and I'll give it back. That's what Kathy Hochul did. And then to make matters worse, once she took all that money, and once she, she forced the ransom payment for what she was holding hostage. And look, these, this isn't hyperbole. This is exactly what it was. It was a ransom payment. And once she got that payment, then she makes the other claim that now that she's taken this money from the Seneca Nation, she's going to use the overwhelming majority of this money to, um, to fund her $600 million commitment to, build, uh, to building a new bill stadium in Western New York. So she, she does this terrible thing to the Western New York economy and then tries to cast herself as, off as the hometown hero because she's from Western New York. She's going to cast herself off as the hometown hero. I came up with the money for the bill stadium. Now, part of the reason she did this is because she knew she was going to meet resistance downstate. The idea of spending somewhere in the neighborhood of $600 million of state funds for a, 
a stadium for for billionaires, the the owners of the Bills, uh, you know, the Bills team, look, the Pagulas who own the the Buffalo Bills, are multi million. They're billionaires. They they have much so much money that they've made out of hydrofracking and natural gas and oil. That's that's where they get the riches from, and that's why they can afford to own the the Buffalo hockey team, the Sabers, the um, uh, the lacrosse team, the the the, uh, the Buffalo Bills, <clears throat> and they aren't even putting up as much money as Kathy Hochul just robbed from the Senecas. And yes, it does get worse. Kathy Hochul's husband, a former U.S. attorney, William Hochul, is now the lead attorney and major principal of Del- of the Delaware North Corporation, which has tens, if not hundreds of millions of state uh, dollars worth of state contracts to do everything from concessions on the thruway to uh, the state parks. And uh, it, it also is a gaming company. They, they are actually the, the straight up, straight up co- competitor to the Seneca Nation on two of the facilities that exist right within the so-called exclusivity zone of the Seneca Nation. And they also happen to be the, uh, the contract holder for the, for the food and beverage concessions of the Bill Stadium and the new Bill Stadium. So she does this thing that has a direct benefit to her husband and, 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 and the company that he's a principal in. She does this as some sort of workaround to try to avoid any pushback from, from downstate for spending $600 million worth of state funding for, for a football stadium. And she does it all by robbing the Senecas. But look, so that's the, I mean... That's the incredible story here. And you know what the crazy part is? Anybody who would normally say, wow, that's a terrible thing that the state did to the Senecas, there's a whole lot of white people on all of social media, every um, mainstream media website and uh, you know, uh, comment sections, there's a whole lot of white people saying, well, the Senecas had to pay. Yeah, it's fair that the state did this. I mean, there's all kinds of people that are still rallying around Kathy Hochul's actions in, in doing this, this overreach, violating the state compact to do it, and essentially holding the Seneca Nation hostage so they could get a ransom payment. And, and, and indeed, the Seneca Nation had no choice. They were trying to hold off this payment, all the while putting it, putting it aside until the Interior Department reviewed, but they couldn't wait for the Interior Department. And, and, and shame on Deb Hallen. Shame, shame on the Interior Department and all of the previous administrations of the Interior Department for never addressing these issues and for failing to address this issue, even as this conflict between the Seneca Nation and the state of New York, Kathy Hochul in particular, raged on. But I, look, I would be remiss if I, if I didn't go back and revisit what the conflict really is. And I know some of you heard it before, but I want this show to stand as the essentially the, the definitive explanation on what the conflict is over. The Seneca Nation entered into a state gaming compact with the state of New York in 2000, for 2002 when they opened up the first casino in Niagara Falls. In that compact, there were certain things that, that uh, the Seneca Nation certainly conceded. One of the things they conceded was uh, they diminished their, their ability, ability to acquire land through a separate piece of legislation, a federal piece of legislation called the Salamanca Lease Settlement Act, where they had this unique ability to buy land and take it not into federal trust, but to take clear um, 
unencumbered title to, uh, to land as Seneca Nation land. A res- what they call restricted fee title. Not, not trust land, but restricted fee title. They could actually reacquire land in their original own title. Not a New York State deed, just to, just to put a little clarity to that. But, and they diminished that. They, they actually said, well, well, we'll reduce our land acquisition funds down to $5 million, and we'll only buy property for these, the, the casino, the, the three casinos we plan to build, and anything beyond that, we won't do any commercial uh, development on. Now, why we, I don't even know why you would do that, but that was one of the, the concessions the state made. Now, the Senecas did um, make a deal to take over the Niagara Falls Convention Center, which was in a real state of dilapidation. It, it, was, it was in terrible shape. It was costing the city of Niagara Falls, you know, over a million dollars a year just to keep it from, you know, <laughs> going back to nature, literally. I mean, it, it was in rough shape. And they immediately had to spend two, two or three hundred million dollars to try to, well, to save the building and, and to turn it into a functional, uh, functional casino. And thereby doing this, created a tourist destination in Niagara Falls, something that almost doesn't exist on the U.S. side. All of the tourist destinations essentially are on the Canadian side. And they did this to what would ultimately stop the, the flow of money going across the border into the casinos on the Canadian side. So that's, what the, so, so that's how the Seneca Nation got involved in gaming in the first place. One of the provisions of the gaming compact was a provision called revenue sharing. Now, keep in mind, there is no requirement for revenue sharing in, uh, in accordance to the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act. In fact, forcing a nation to, to pay a fee, a tax, or, or any kind of charge is illegal under IGRA. It is illegal. The only way revenue sharing is legal is if the state makes a concession that substantially benefits the business. And that concession has to be both substantial and quantifiable. And by substantial, it means that the, what the state is giving up, and I mean they have to give it up, has to be worth more, or it has to have a value that's equal to or greater than the amount of revenue that they're going to receive. Otherwise, it's not a benefit to the business. If it costs more than it's worth, then it's actually a liability. It's not an asset. So what the state said is, well, we're going to give you exclusivity. But then they worded it in such a way that said, well, what we're going to give you is that you know, we're, we're going to give you a promise that we won't put class three gaming machines in the 15 counties in Western New York. We won't authorize class three gaming machines in the 15 counties of Western New York. Now, the problem with this concession is that it wasn't a concession because New York State couldn't do it anyway. Their law prohibited class three gaming. In fact, their law pro- prohibited casino gaming as it was known uh, would, uh, as it would be known as class three gaming. Their, their state constitution prohibited it. It's been prohibited for, for over 60 or 70 years. A longstanding prohibition against gambling. Now, they've been doing lotteries and using their, you know, their creative wordsmithing uh, and some technological advances, New York State actually increased its gaming presence even within the, within the so-called exclusivity zone of the Seneca Nation without ever, without ever employing a Class 3 uh, slot machine. So they really didn't have an exclusivity for gaming. They only had an exclusivity for one form of gaming, Class 3 slot machines, something the state couldn't do anyway. So to the extent the state could compete against the Seneca Nation in their exclusivity zone, they did. 
and they increased that gaming presence. So over the course of the revenue sharing, which actually had a an ever incre had an increasing payment from the Seneca Nation, it actually started out at 18% of the net slot drop, and I'll explain what that is. Then it, uh, for two years, then it went to 22% of the net slot drop for five years, and then the last seven years of the initial term of the uh, of the of the gaming compact was at 25% of the net slot drop. Now, so what is net slot drop? That's not a normal accounting term. Of course it isn't. It's a, it's a unique term that, that was designed specifically as a means to mask what they were really getting from the Seneca Nation. Net slot drop is the amount of money a slot machine takes in minus the payout, but before any expenses. So after the money comes into a slot machine and, and the payout is calculated, New York State was getting 25% right off the top. Right off the top. The 75% that the Senecas got to keep, they had to pay for everything. They had to pay for the lights. They had to pay for the machines. They had to pay for the, the slot attendants and the cocktail waitresses and the, and the staffing and the, you know, the, the buffet, the, you know, the renovations. You know, everything, all of the major expenses for a world-class casino had to come out of their 75%. So when you break it down and you take out all of the operational expenses out of the 75%, what the state got was actually closer and, and sometimes in excess of 50% of the net revenue of those machines. So, so the state got 50% of the net revenue from these slot machines for no investment and really no concession because they couldn't do slot machines anyway. <laughs> and frankly, they were, making, they were going to the bank anyway without ever having to produce a facility. So they, they built these three facilities within the exclusivity zone. They turned their failing racetracks, which uh, horse racing is, you know, is, is, all, is almost dead. So New York State turned their th three of the horse tracks that are in Western New York within this exclusivity zone into casinos. And they called them casinos. And they ran signs up and down the throughway saying, play our slots at, the, at Hamburg Casino, at Batavia Casino, at Finger Lakes Casino. So they, they built this, this, uh, this casino industry, but they, they, they built it just shy of, of, of being categorized or classified as, as class three gaming. Those machines looked, played, sounded exactly like a slot machine. They were a slot machine, but by a technical definition, they were not class three. But they clearly were, were designed to take market share away from the Seneca's gaming operation. So, and, and that turned into a conflict. That conflict raged on for several, for several years. In fact, the Seneca Nation withheld payments back then. And they settled that dispute in 2013. So in 2013, the settlement was, the, the Seneca said, we will only pay two-thirds of the money we've escrowed at, at that point. So they released $400 million to the state of New York, kept $200 million. That $200 million, for all intents and purposes, was surrendered by the state for violating both the, the theme of exclusivity, but also to compensate for the fact that the exclusivity had diminished in value. So that's 2013. Now, this compact doesn't end until the end of 2016. So even though the Senecas had reduced the amount they were, they were going to pay in this lump sum at this point, 
by a third. They didn't reduce the percentage. Now, some would ask. In fact, I was one of the ones that asked that. And it's why wouldn't they do that? Well, part of the thing, there was, there was really a genuine fear at the time. And, and some, that, some of that fear has abated since then. But there was this 800-pound gorilla in the room that, that told the Senecas, if you don't play nice with the state, they won't renew the compact. And, there's a, and there was already an automatic renewal clause in their compact that would automatically renew it for another, another seven years, as long as nobody had any, you know, a, any changes that they wanted to go through. And they could submit changes. They, they could have altered some of the language. They would, they would have to do it up to the run-up the run to it expiring. But the simple thing was to just let it automatically renewal, renew by, by nobody saying anything. So... The reasoning that the Senecas had is, look, we, we proved in our standoff with the state that the state had diminished it, it, the, its exclusivity value, and we, and we charged them $200 million for that. That's, and that's no small thing. But you know what? We've only got to make these payments through the end of, 20, uh, end of 2016. Why? Because there was no language in the compact that talked about I mean, it was very explicit, 22% for two years, or uh, no, 18% for two years, 22% for uh, five years, and 25% for seven years. But there was no language in the compact, none, that talked about payments continuing in the automatic renewal period of seven years. No language there, nothing in there. So the reasoning the Seneca's had is, rather than trying to upset our current compact with the, with the state of New York, we're just going to pay this thing out through 2016, and then we're not going to pay for the next seven years, or we're not gonna pay beyond that period. Now, there was some question whether the Senecas thought that their so-called exclusivity would continue um, even though they weren't making payments because they felt like, well, that didn't have a term to it. There was no language about you know, their, their exclusivity, but there was language about the payments that ended in, in, in 14 years. So that was the Seneca Nation's reasoning. So when 2017 begins, the Seneca stopped paying. And, yet, and you know what? Even before the renewal, the city, uh, officials from the city of Niagara Falls raised this question to New York State. They raised it to the Cuomo administration. They said, you know, there's no language in this compact that says we get paid after 2016. And, and the Cuomo administration said, don't worry about it. We're going to make them pay. Now, they didn't say, well, we're going to clarify that before the renewal. No, they didn't clarify anything. They went forward, just like the Senecas did. They went forward with the exact language that, that was laying there. So... When the Seneca stopped paying, of course, New York State cried foul. They said, no, you got to keep paying. And ultimately, they forced the clause in the compact that says they could submit these disputes, these kinds of disputes, to binding, arbitra binding unappealable arbitration. Now, arbitration works by the Seneca Nation selecting a judge, the state of New York selecting a judge, and then those two judges selecting a third judge. So the arbitration panel had... Three judges, one native guy, Kevin Washburn, a former uh, assistant secretary to the Interior Department, and two white guys who I don't even know who they were, but, but, but two you know, guys from, from downstate, essentially, who may or may not have any gaming experience whatsoever, but they were judges, lawyers, and so the, these three men sat on this arbitration panel. Now, what was immediately clear was that the two of these judges were... The, the, or the case that, you know, the case that New York was making, let's put it this way, was that payment, it was implied that the payments should continue through the, uh, the uh, renewal period. Well, the problem is under 
very clear legal doctrine. There is this thing called the Four Corners Doctrine of Contract Law, which says if it ain't in the four corners of the paper, it ain't in there. There's no such thing as an implied um, interpretation. It either is explicit or it's not in there. If it doesn't say what is happening in that com contract, you can't say that, well, it, it was meant to be in there. If it ain't in there, it ain't in there. And clearly, there was no language in, uh, in, in, the, in the compact, even as it related to the renewal period, that payments would continue. So there really wasn't ambiguity. I mean, there really wasn't. I mean, it was clear that the payments were through, 24, uh, through uh, 2016, 14, year, 14 years of payments. No mention of, of payments beyond that. So two of these judges, the two white guys, said, well, there's, 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 there's ambiguity here. Well, in order to have ambiguity, you have to have language that's unclear. And there was no unclear language. In fact, there was no language. They created this myth, this lie, that the renewal period was ambiguous about whether payments should continue or not. Well, here's the thing about ambiguity, especially as it really, well, specifically as it relates to Native people. There are these things called the canons of statutory construction, and these are what are the, are the established way that law is, is, is understood. Well, the canons of statutory construction as it relates to treaties, native treaties, Indian treaties, I hate to use the word, but Indian treaties, <laughs> laws affecting native people and contracts with native people, clearly states that in the event that there's ambiguity in one of these relationships, the ambiguity must be interpreted in favor of the Indians, of the native people. I mean, that's just federal law. I mean, and, and that's overarching federal law. So, so, so it does apply to state law. It does apply to even do the rules of uh, the American Arbitration Association. But these two guys created this illusion of ambiguity and then violated the, stat the, the canons of statutory <laughs> construction law that say that if there is ambiguity, you gotta, you've got to interpret it um, as, the, as the Native people are, are interpreting it. So that, that's what they did. And they ruled against the Seneca. And they said, well... We're saying you got to pay for the, the, the seven years. The third judge, uh, uh, he said, these two guys just rewrote the compact. So the Seneca's lost in an unappealable binding arbitration. Now, they did try to do some legal maneuvering um, that wasn't necessarily trying to appeal the arbitration ruling. But they, they tried some, some federal actions that... Uh, that always resulted in the same thing. The federal government said, no, you, you submitted yourself to binding arbitration. So they didn't rule against the Senecas you know, or make a new ruling. They just stood by the arbitration ruling. But, the same thing, but at the same time, the Senecas were trying to get the Interior Department to do what their jobs are, and, and that is to review gaming compacts. The reality is the Interior Department never renewed the seven-year renewal period of the Seneca Nation's New York State Gaming Compact. And now that, that, that the compact had been altered, so it wasn't just more of the same. It, it had been altered by these two arbitrators. They had changed an added language that said, you have to pay this percentage, 25%, and you've got to pay it throughout seven, the seven years. So, you know, as per, as per the, Kevin Washburn, the other judge, he said they rewrote the compact. So 
any amendment of a compact. So not only had the Interior Department not reviewed the seven-year renewal period, but, but any change of a compact requires a review of the Interior Department. But this was the Trump administration at the time. And the Trump, Trump's Interior Department said, you know what? We would rather not review unless both parties ask us. Well, wait. We're telling you that something is wrong here, and you're saying that you won't even look at it unless the guy who's doing the wrong, Andrew Cuomo at the time, asks you to? That's like telling a crime victim that, I'm sorry this terrible thing happened to you, but uh, we're not going to investigate the crime because your accuser, um, or the accuser, the perpetrator of this crime, uh, has not agreed to, uh, to have us investigate. I mean, and look, this isn't an exaggeration. That's exactly the analogy here. The Seneca Nation was having a crime committed against them, and they couldn't get the authorized agency to investigate. But then what happens? Deb Hallen, Deb Hallen, native woman, gets appointed as the interior secretary. Well, that should be good news. That should change things. But you know what? She didn't do any more than 30 years of predecessor had done. They, they didn't review this thing. And, and they couldn't get a straight answer out of her either. They're, they're, they did launch a National Indian Gaming Commission investigation, but that investigation ignored much of what the Seneca Nation was asking the Interior Department to do, which was to review the compact now that it had been changed. And keep in mind, what they were going to have to review was that th this change in revenue sharing was no longer an agreement. It was an imposition that came out of arbitration. So that is what the Seneca Nation was asking the Interior Department to, re to, to review. But, but, it, but it hadn't been reviewed. And in fact, the, the Seneca Nation also said, Let's get back to your definition about what a legal revenue sharing agreement is. Because what the state is calling this exclusivity, no longer, if it ever had value, because they, they actually couldn't put class three gaming machines in, uh, in Western New York, but they've also carved up and, and chipped away at the gaming market. And how do they do it? Well, let me, let me revisit that a little bit. Over the 14 year period of this, uh, uh, of the actual gaming compact before the renewal period. New York State continued to expand its lottery system. I mean, everything from, you know, quick draw to lotto to, you know, more and more new styles and denominations of scratch-offs available at more and more locations all through the state, but certainly in Western New York. So they expanded that. They also, as I said, turned three of their, their failing horse racing tracks into, into casinos. With, with full slot parlors, although albeit class two machines, but they also <laughs> they also rode the backs of Seneca Nation and, and for, to some extent Oneida and, and Mohawk Territory and their gaming operations by convincing the public that the Constitution should be changed because the Seneca uh, because New York State's already in, involved in gaming. And, you know, of course they mentioned their lotteries and their and their racetrack casinos, but they also mentioned their, their dubious partnership with, with native gaming. They said, oh, New York State's already involved in casino gaming. We're involved, you know, by proxy through native territories. So New York State used native gaming to build the market and soften up its constituency to do something that they had never done, change the Constitution to allow New York State to do class three gaming. And 
That's not an easy process. Easy process. It takes two successive or two two legislative sessions in a row, two years in a row. They have to pass the amendment, and then it goes to public referendum. So it took two successive legislatures to to pass a, a constitutional amendment to allow class three gaming, and then they had to put it to a public vote. And that public vote was only possible because, frankly, New York State had used native gaming to soften up its constituency and their, and their allowance or accessibility or certainly their, their tolerance for, uh, for state-sponsored gaming. And so they did. They, they passed um, uh, a change in their constitution, and then they named three sites that would open up these casinos, one of which was within the Seneca market. Now, it wasn't within the exclusivity zone. It was right on the edge, on the, just on the other side of Rochester. And, of course, they advertised in western New York. And, of course, this is a full-fledged, you know, um, world-class casino, allegedly. I've never been in there, so I can't really say. And more of the market gets shipped away by, by New York State. So that's, that's how they diminished the... Um, the value of their so-called exclusivity. And it didn't stop there because as many of you may recall, New York state also approved sports betting. Initially sports betting had to take place in a casino. You had to go into one of their state licensed casinos. And in fact, Seneca nation even has a sports, uh, has sports betting. You have to go in the casino to do it. But New York state didn't stop there. They said, Oh no, we're going to, we're going to allow it online gaming. And you know what? We're going to allow it to be on your phone. We're going to, we're going to approve a phone app that allows you to gamble sitting on your couch in front of your television um, and, and, and make money off of that. So, again, the, the market continues to be saturated. So this is, the, this is the story, right? And this is the argument the Senecas have. And, I, and I'm not among those people who say the Senate, the, the New York, that New York State violated the, the compact. This, this isn't, isn't whether the compact was violated. This is whether the federal law is violated. Two issues. The compact was amended, and the Interior Department never re reviewed it. And then it was amended as such that it was no longer a, a revenue-sharing agreement, but a revenue-sharing imposition, which is illegal according to the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act. And, of course, the other issue is that revenue-sharing, that the concession is so significantly less valuable that, uh, than, than the uh, revenue-shared that, that it's illegal. But like I said... The Indian Gaming, the National Indian Gaming Commission did investigate one aspect, one violation, and, and it was a requirement called in, in uh, the, in, the um, Indian Gaming Regulatory Act that says a third party cannot obtain proprietary interest in native gaming. And so what they did was they did something they've never done before. In fact, they say it in the report. They said, we, this is the first time we've ever used the proprietary interest requirement um, to evaluate a gaming compact, and essentially to evaluate the state's conduct, because that's what this is all about. This is about the state's conduct. So they said that we've never done this before. Well, there's a reason you never done, did that before, because that requirement had nothing to do with states. That requirement was to prevent the mob, <laughs> organized crime. Uh, it was to prevent financiers. It was to prevent management companies, because some of the early native gaming facilities were actually run by Bally's and MGM and a few other big gaming corporations. They, that's who the management company was from, and it was, it was actually branded that way. 
And this proprietary interest requirement said those companies can't own the casino. They can't control it. And they can't have long-term relationships. They have to be something that's renewed, re renewable, uh, uh, relatively short terms. And they can't ha um, see the substantial or the, uh, you know, or the predominant or uh, majority of the revenue. But when they said, well, we're going we're to see whether this applies to the state, immediately the, the National Gaming Commission said, you know what? The state isn't violating the, uh, the, the control of the casino issue because they're actually allowed to under IGRA. So we can't find that. These are the three factors, control, long-term relationship, and, uh, and money. As well, control, I mean, that, that's written into the, uh, into the Gaming Act. So we can't say the state violates that. And they said, oh, and, and the term? Well, I don't know, 14 years that renews to 21 years, that's long-term. I mean, that's, that's the, the entire life of, of Seneca Gaming, that New York State has had this so-called relationship. And they said, yeah, but you know what? We think these long-term compacts offer stability to Native people. I don't know how the hell the, the NIGC could say it it's offers stability when the state can do whatever it wants to change their gaming laws while the, while the Seneca Nation is bound strictly to the language of the compact for their market. So there's no stability, but that's what, that's what NIGC is. So we, we think that these long-term, in fact, some nations have perpetual compacts, and we don't have a problem with that, even though it's one of the factors that would substantiate this proprietary interest requirement violation. And they said, and then there's a, and then there's a money. Yeah, the state does make a lot of money. They probably got paid more than, the, than their exclusivity was worth. But, you know, it, it, they did offer exclusivity, so we can't find them. If I, so they did this investigation. They said, even though all of the factors would have pointed to a, a proprietary interest violation, they said, but because it's the state, it's okay. But in that report, they did mention a few things. They mentioned that, yes, the state was overpaid. They received substantially more money for this revenue sharing than was ever anticipated at the beginning. While, and they acknowledge this, while the exclusivity diminished. Now, for some reason, the guy who wrote this report, uh, I think his name is Tom Cunningham or something like that, he basically said, yeah, the exclusivity was diminished, but it was diminished uh, by agreement of both parties. No, it wasn't. If he's talking about the settlement agreement from 2013, that wasn't the Senate nation agreeing that they could reduce the, the value of the, that was saying, no, we're charging you $200 million for that. But see, that's, uh, so in, to the extent that the federal government did investigate, in fact, what the, uh, the National Indian Gaming Commission actually said was whether the um, exclusivity is worth the payment that, they, that, that has been applied to them um, is worth it needs further evaluation. Well, there you go. That's exactly what the Seneca Nation has been asking for. So you didn't answer the question. You just re-asked the same question the Seneca Nation said, which is why the Seneca Nation was putting the money aside in this restricted escrow account. In case the Interior Department did look at all of this stuff and review it and then say, yes, you got to pay the state. Is that yes, Seneca Nation, you got to pay the state. And you know, and if, if Deb Haaland's Interior Department had done that, well, that says a whole lot. I mean, look, I'm as cynical as anybody about the so-called trust relationship between the Interior Department and Native people. But I think this would have um, um, really put 
clear definition to what that relationship is. The Interior Department didn't, uh, isn't serving the, the Seneca people. It's serving the state. And we'll see what happens. You know, and of course, the way this thing played out with what Kathy Hochul did with, with uh, freezing all of the, uh, the bank accounts, she forced this ransom payment, but there still is payments that are, you know, essentially, as far as the state's concerned, due to them through the end of 2023. And of course, then there's also this idea of, a, um, of the new compact that's got to be negotiated. So the story isn't done. And I would argue, because there does seem to be a little bit of movement on the Interior Department to possibly take a look at this thing. And if they do, if they do take a look at this thing, who knows, the state might have to pay that half a billion dollars back. And that's what it was, a half a billion dollars. And to be clear here, over the first 14 years, and now with this um, seized payment, it's $2 billion that the Seneca Nation has paid to the state. The Senecas didn't make that much money, but the state did. A billion of which never went back. I mean, the, the, out of that 1.4 over the first 14 years, a billion dollars went to Albany and nobody ever saw it again. Who knows where it went? It didn't come to Western New York. The 400 million that stayed, it went to desperate, desperately impoverished cities who probably filled more potholes with that money than anything of any substance. They certainly didn't do any economic development with those funds or any tourism development, which is what, they, what, what it was designed to do. This was supposed to be a windfall for cities. The, the revenue sharing, as it came back to Niagara Falls and Buffalo and the city of Salamanca, was supposed to allow those cities to do something special with that money, not just throw it into their city coffers to be swallowed up by, by routine maintenance. And if you've ever been to Niagara Falls, you know that Niagara Falls has not exactly done much beautification there. <laughs> Salamanca's struggling. You know, Buffalo claims that they're, they have this, you know, this renewed city because the Pagulas have uh, gotten all kinds of tax abatements to do expansions of, you know, some of their sports facilities. But we'll see how much um, things like sales tax revenue really increases for the city of Buffalo to see whether they really have something renewed there. So, in many ways, the jury's still out, even though Kathy Hochul managed to um, extort half a billion dollars out of the Seneca Nation. What, what does it look for, like going forward? Well, it still depends on whether the Interior Department does a review or not. And, you know, basically, Deb Haaland's legacy, not only as the, the first Native in, uh, cabinet member or Interior Secretary, but frankly, her whole political career may rest on whether she screws the Senecas here by, by remaining silent. And it does, and like I said, there does seem to be some movement. So what about the compact that's going to be renewed uh, after 2023? You know, there, there's still many people who think, well, but you got to give the state something, don't you? And the short answer is no. No, the state is entitled to no revenue from the Seneca Nation. There, are, there is a provision in IGRA that says, they can work out a reimbursement arrangement for the cost that the state incurs in doing whatever regulatory services that they provide for the Seneca Nation. But that should be detailed. And, and that's, we're, we're talking about tens of millions of dollars there, not hundreds of millions and certainly not billions. But as far as revenue sharing is, is concerned, and this is still a tough one because there are those at the Seneca Nation who believe that, that it, it does make a smart 
you know, it is a smart business decision to pay the state for something for what remains of the of their exclusivity deal. And I say no, it doesn't. And 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 I and I challenge the casino management and executives to really review this thing. And because my question is, if if you really consider what gives you the strongest competitive advantage? Is it keeping all of your revenue? Or is it paying for something that'll never happen? Or to, I'm sorry, paying to prevent something that'll never happen, which is a casino built in your backyard. Now, how do I know it'll never happen? Well, remember that casino I told you about on the other side of Rochester? That's 100 miles away. And it can't make enough money Competing in the Seneca market and, and between the Oneida market and the Seneca market, it can't make enough money, even with that much space. And a city, uh, cities the size of Rochester and Syracuse right there to make its own debt service payments. It's, a, it's been only paying interest. And I would bet that due to COVID, they even fell behind on that. They probably had to do some refinancing. They clearly had to, re, uh, they had to get a bailout from the state. So... A casino, while the Seneca Nation was paying almost 50% of its revenue to the state, could not compete against the Seneca Nation. So who the hell is going to put a casino in the backyard of a, of a well-established gaming operation that pays nothing to the state while they're being forced to pay 40, 50, 60% of their revenue through tax to the state of New York? I mean, who would even propose such a thing? And who would finance such a, uh, you know, such a loser? Nobody would. And, you know, and here's, here's the other reality is the state doesn't really need to do to build a half a billion dollar facility in Niagara Falls to compete, to somehow try to compete against the Seneca's flagship casino. No, they don't need to do that. They'll have, they'll have you playing games on your phone. They'll have slot machines on your phone. They'll have more sports betting on your phone. They'll have you buying lottery tickets on your phone. They don't need to build a half a billion dollar facility. They're going to continue to saturate the market. And so this is, the, this is my warning to the Senecas or to any Nave gaming. Your market is getting buried. Your market is getting saturated. Regardless of you, whether you, I mean, I, I got to tell you, <laughs> I've got friends up in uh, Mohawk territory. I'm, I'm Mohawk. I got friends up in Aquasasne. And anybody who could, could explain to me why Aquasasti pays 25% of the net slot drop to the state is just beyond me. Nobody's going to build a casino up in the North Country. I mean, look, I'm not, not condemning the, the, the Mohawks for doing it, for, for St. Regis for doing it. It's where you live. So, yeah, you build a facility and you scale it to the market. But what kind of market exists at the top of the state? Nobody's going to build one. They don't need to pay all the money that they're paying. And they're paying tens of millions, maybe not hundreds of millions, to the, to the state. To prevent something that'll never happen. Oneida, the same thing. Oneida had ended up agreeing to pay because it, it, it their land claims got tied into the whole thing. But they've got a racetrack right in their backyard taking market share. But the Senecas know that this exclusivity, if it had any value at all, which I still argue it didn't, because the state didn't really give anything up. I mean, hell, they <laughs> they use Predominantly, they use the Seneca Nation to build a market and 
and change their laws so they could compete with Class 3 gaming. But they're not going to throw, they're going to build casinos downstate if they're going to build any more casinos. They're not going to build one in Niagara Falls and compete side by side with an established gaming institution that doesn't pay the state anything. Exclusivity is, or, or their competitiveness is much more significantly enhanced by not paying the state anything than by trying to assign some value to what little remains of their so-called exclusivity. You don't have to buy, pay off the state to keep Class 3 gaming machines from coming into your territory because nobody's going to put them there anyway. So again, that's my challenge to the, to the casino executives. Ask them. Ask them what makes them more competitive. Ask them what would do more to cling on to a fading gaming market. Keeping all the revenue or, or trying to assign a value for something that'll never happen. I mean, I, I, look, the first three casinos that were licensed by the state, none of the three are doing that well. None of them. And, and certainly the one that's closest to the Seneca Nation is, is really struggling. Like I said, they can't, they, can't even, they can't even pay their money back that they borrowed to build a place. And I'm not saying anything new here, but apparently some of this stuff gets lost in the conversation, which makes Hochul's actions that much more egregious. You know, because, again, I think the anger that I've heard, even as a Seneca Nation president, that has been pretty com compliant to, to this governor, the anger that I've heard in his voice does not bode well for the Seneca Nation doing anything of any consequence, really, for not just the state of New York, but for Buffalo or Niagara Falls either. They're complicit in all this. When you've got the mayors of these two cities begging for some unearned income to come to their cities and ignoring the fact that a billion dollars has, has left Western New York in the process, did, was it really a, a boon for your, for your city to get $100 million when a billion dollars left? I mean, don't you have any economic students at UB or Buff State or, or Canisius or, or any of, these, any of these, these schools here? Can't somebody evaluate what a billion dollars being pulled out of your area really means? And I don't care if, if Hochul's promising to build you a bill stadium with Seneca funds as, a, as some sort of political ploy to avoid the scrutiny from downstate. Downstate's still going to say, you know what? It doesn't matter where that money came from. That's state coffer money. You can't spend $600 million on a, on a, on a private enterprise, on a, on a football team owned by a billionaire. So that's the story. But you know what? I hope if you're listening to this in New York City or in Washington, D.C., or any place else that the Internet reaches, that you understand what Hochul did, what the governor did to the Seneca Nation was, was just an absolute racist act of aggression. And it is racism. The Senecas are a distinct people. When you take an action against a people and assert your superiority and your dominance and you subjugate them in such a way, that's the definition of racism. And I'm tired of people who are afraid to say it. 
And I'm also tired of people say, yeah, you're just going to throw the race card in. No, this isn't playing the race card. This is calling it what it is. Shame on you, Kathy Hochul. You are corrupt. You are deceitful. And, you know, I, I don't know if you, if, you win, if you finally do become the elected governor because you're, you aren't one now. But I'll tell you, you know, what you've done in terms of fostered your conflict of interest because of the role your, your husband plays in the gaming industry and as a recipient of some of this benefit of your, of your bill's promise, it's, it's corrupt. It's corrupt. And you know what? I got to say, say it to Deb Hallen, too. I don't know if you're really going to step up. I'm still hopeful that you will. To me, it's the only thing that can redeem your character in the eyes of many people. But shame on you for your silence thus far. Because the likelihood of the Senate ever getting that half a billion dollars back is probably fairly slim. It's possible, but it's probably fairly slim. And so that's it. I mean, and, but I, I hope if you're listening to this program that you are outraged with what this, the state did to the Seneca Nation over the course of these last few days. It's a crime and it's racist as hell. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. I'm John Kane for Resistance Radio and for Let's Talk Native. Yahweh.